this computer. All right. Uh, here's another dispatch from Afghanistan with Holly McKay. And this week we're going to talk about being a woman journalist in Afghanistan. So you have a very unique perspective about uh, what it must mean to be a woman operating in what is very much a totally man's world right now. To tell me, you know, like in the last week, highs and lows. So first of all, I think uh, sort of prefaced by obviously Afghanistan is an Islamic country. It's very conservative. However, when I was working under the previous government, um, I think there was sort of an understanding, especially that the U.S. had sort of been in there for so long. So it was quite normal to go in to conduct interviews uh, with different leaders, uh, even religious scholars, etc. And there really wasn't, uh, it wasn't a big deal to, to be a woman. Um, that was something that really changed quite pretty much overnight when the Taliban came in was that suddenly it was this really unknown world and you were dealing with suddenly all men, there were no women and um, sort of an extremely conservative group that really had spent the better part of the last two decades living in the mountains and suddenly they're now in charge of running a government and that includes speaking to journalists. And so I think it was a new world for them as much as it was a new world for me and a new world for everybody around me. So it's something that I've had to to really adapt to. And in the beginning, um, I sort of had the understanding that these, the, the people that I was interviewing were not going to look at me. Um, if they happened to sort of meet my, my gaze, their eyes would avert. Um, and that it was going to be, you know, very different for them as well. And, and uh, sort of interesting because I think after about five or six weeks, I didn't realize how much it would really grate on me. And I got to a bit of a point the last few days where I found myself snapping a little bit. And it was just because when you are, not greeted when you are essentially invisible in every meeting that you go into pretty much um, it does it, it just has a strained way of way of weighing you down um, especially when I'm, I'm with a, a male fixer Naweed, who I love and, and also my photographer Jake and so when we walk into a room they're greeted with the handshakes and the, the pastor greetings and and they're looked at and, and things are quite normal for them but for me it's sort of I'm this entity that that pretty much doesn't exist when I walk into a room. And as a Western woman, that's something that obviously we're not very accustomed to. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, so, so let, let's explore that a little bit more. It's it, because just from your description alone, you are the center of attention that manifests as a dead hole, kind of more like a, a, a very strategic rest in, in a musical score, right? I mean, and, um, do you feel the fact that you're in the middle of that? And because I can't imagine that these people aren't adapting to the fact that they have to interact with someone they would really like to interact with, uh, but they have to do it in a way that's that's as awkward for them as it is for you sometimes. You, yeah, and I am I'm also very aware I'm very aware of the fact that it is new for them that they've never really had to deal with a woman from the outside that the only woman that they see really is their own wife and daughters and mother and they don't really interact beyond that at all. So this idea of having to really speak to a woman and interview with a woman is also very foreign to them. So I am very aware of that, and there is a double entendre to it, and that being that certainly you are viewed as property or um, 
second class in many ways, and that certainly evidently comes through. And then on the flip side to that, they see it as their side of respect to not look at you, to not sort of acknowledge you. They see that as, as being respectful to you and, and respectful to your husband or whoever that may be, uh, your male relative that's around you. So that's sort of the way that the culture um, falls, you know, falls into play with that. But it's, that is also very hard um, for us to kind of get our heads around that a little bit too, because that's certainly not the way that we've been shown to show respect to a woman by completely acknowledging her, not acknowledging her. So it is a very strange sense of both security and uh, there's a strange sense of coddling that comes with it a little bit. And then also just sort of uh, being regarded as property. And I think each, each of the Taliban members has their own way of perceiving a woman. And the irony of it really is, is that last week I was in Kandahar and we went to uh, this very, very tiny little mosque in uh, Sangsar, which is actually where Mullah Omar started the Taliban in 1994. And that was where he preached and he rallied his troops from there and, and people kind of converged. And that's how the Taliban was essentially born to become this extremely powerful political and military movement. But what I found to be so interesting was when I went there, that the imams and the village elders who you would think would be the most conservative on the planet because they're the ones that are still continuing to to hold Mullah Omar's talk to really preach his legacy, they were actually had no problem with me being there. They looked at me, engaged with me, shared their lunch with me, um, you know, wanted to know about my personal life. I think one of them was looking for another wife. But I think I was quite surprised because I, it was quite different to what the sort of the message you get a, get from the younger generation of Taliban um, is that sort of the village elders are, are okay with dealing with you, but it's, it's sort of the younger generation that is, is quite, is not. And that it's sort of a little bit concerning in, in some levels too, and, and makes you question whether there is also a little bit of a backward step happening there too. Um, and I think really what, what kind of did me in and what I sort of made me just feel a real burning sense of anger that I hadn't felt because I pretty much just accepted that this was the way it was. This was how I was going to get work done. I wasn't going to be able to to you know, have a have a hizzy fit and walk out of a room um, if I wanted to get the interviews and, and get what I needed done. And that was when I was sitting with some poppy farmers in Helmand and there was a Taliban guy there and then just several poppy farmers. And so it was all men in this little sort of cave that we were in having having tea. And a young boy was serving and he must have been about eight years old and he served everybody else tea but me. And that is when I just went, what the hell? This is an eight-year-old boy who's already been conditioned to look at women like they don't exist or that they don't matter. And that was for me, that was a real sort of turning moment of of just sort of feeling this uh, indignation of here I am doing the interview here, here I am kind of holding the fort and yet I'm not worthy of a cup of tea. Um, and so that was just sort of a real a visceral moment for me. Mm, yeah. So, but what's, what's interesting in that is, uh, you know, cause you, you, you see, you know, that that's uh, through the eyes of a child, and in eyes of elders, and then these these people in the middle that are uh, seem to be struggling with uh, what the right thing to do in, in you know a month after uh, regime change, and so from a sociological or anthropological standpoint, it's it's fascinating that that you're seeing this, and um, 
And the other thing that I'm hearing is, is how much it's affecting you from the, from the point of view of the, uh, the built up, uh, emotions of it. But does it affect your work and your, you know, when you, when you, cause, cause you're a tough cookie, right? You know, and then you go in there and you, and you, and you do your thing. Um, despite all, all of this, uh, strange change, you know, like being on an alien planet, um, how, how's the collecting of the actual factual journalistic information? You know, you're, you're still getting your five W's out of it, right? Yeah. And I mean, still doing the interviews and, and they general for the most part, they seem to be fine with interviewing with me. Um, usually, you know, if any of them are not looking at me, they, you know, still say, welcome to the country. Thank you for having, having, you know, coming. Pashtun Wally is their sort of hospitality code. And they're still very strong about that in terms of having guests come in. So I feel that's not really affected the only, to my knowledge, the only time it was sort of an issue being a woman to do interviews was with the very sort of stringent uh, vice and virtue council. And and when my fixer went to approach them about interviews, they, well, first of all, one of them didn't want to interview with me because he didn't want to be seen by the other religious clergy that was there to be seen interviewing with me. And then another one sort of refused and my, my fixer had to kind of say, well, if you don't interview with a woman, she's going to go and write about it. So I think that sort of turned them off a little bit because they are trying to to charm the outside world in some way. Um, so, you know, that, but, but aside from that, I haven't, I haven't really been refused any interviews on the grounds of being a woman, but it's certainly something that they're trying to navigate how that they're going to possibly sort of deal with that and, um, so yeah, it's sort of an interesting, I guess it's just an interesting learning curve for everybody. And, and I very much pressed upon them is that something they're going to have to get used to if they want international recognition, if they want the support that they say that they want to need from the outside world, then they can't, um, they're going to have to, to learn to, to really treat women with respect and in some sense of equality. It's also, you know, and because there are so many contradictions to this, um, because we can also look at other cultures that the U.S., for example, has very strong relationships with, whether it be Saudi Arabia or other Gulf countries who also have, um, I guess, very stringent um, rules for women versus men. You know, the, the Afghans will look at that and say, well, why why is it OK for that country to do that and, and not for us? So there's so many sort of nuances and, and challenges that come into it. But but I feel that, you know, part of my job you know, as a journalist is to press upon them that girls' education, uh, women's rights, um, treating, you know, the every person with respect is something that they're going to just have to get over it, whether that, you know, comes down to their doctrine or not, if they want that international support, which they desperately need, the economy is in dire straits, then they're going to have to to learn to accept that. Yeah, well, that's, that's, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, and they're, they're clearly uh, trying their best to practice uh, what that looks like in a microcosm concept, uh, with, with you. So, um, you know, in, in, in I'm also very clear about, I'm very clear about, um, you know, what I choose to wear is I choose to wear exactly what I've always worn in Afghanistan for the many years I've, I've covered it. And that is, you know, my simple long dress, my pants, my, uh, hijab. I will not wear a burqa. I will not wear in a club. I will not cover my face. Um, and that is because I don't, I don't want to see that normalized. That is not 
what you know what Islamic law states this, the you know hijab is perfectly acceptable and I think once we start to normalize sort of the covering of the face and, and all of this other stuff I don't think that does any favors especially when western women come in and start to kind of go and wear that I don't I don't think that that choice needs to be taken away uh, from women and there is quite frankly there is no um, sort of court decision on what a woman can wear right now. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to continue to wear what I've always worn. Um, and I did ask the imam about this in Milan and Mosque. I said, why, why do you want women to cover their faces? And, and he basically said that was to stop the temptation of men. And I thought, well, why, you know, get it together, get it together <laughs> because this is, you know, this, why should, you know, and that's a, a a thing I, I see as a, as a foreigner, something that, you know, we should do, um, you know, as women is to, to not normalize this behavior. And the more I see, you know, if I see foreign journalists coming in and they're wearing burqas and all these sorts of things, I think that, that dis- personally and each to their own, but that is disappointing to me because I really believe that women should have the choose, the, the freedom to choose, you know, if they want to wear a burqa and many, many women do in Afghanistan and that's nothing new. You go to rural places. A hundred percent. And even in, in Kabul, a lot of burqas, not a problem, but you know, where is that, where does that become more and where is it not? And where do we sort of just cower and accept that that has to, you know, a woman needs to be invisible. And that's where I, I really draw a line with that. Well, you're, you're also drawing a line, uh, about, uh, you know, at a certain point, all countries end at their own border. And when they have to interact with other things outside their border, uh, they, every country has to adapt to that. So, you know, in, in, in that sense, that's, um, uh, a, a learning curve for a new regime that, that is quickly realizing that the, the pressures of economics make a big difference in just how far you can push whatever it is that you want internally might not work as soon as you step one foot outside your border. And, and I think it's good. I mean, you know, like from, from a woman's perspective, uh, do you think you are making a difference in terms of helping this country realize what you know, the, 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 the limits and, and adaptations that it has to make if it's going to get along in the world and survive? Because, you know, they're, they are in a tenuous period, don't you think? Absolutely tenuous. I I certainly do my best to convey stories as much as possible uh, to people. I really don't know, Dennis, if they have an impact on the outside world. Um, I would like to think they do. I really don't know. I don't. I wish I could do more. I, I feel very powerless. I feel very, um, I guess, disappointed in myself that I can't do more. But you know, my, I feel that all I can do is, is try to convey a little bit of reality too, and. and I think sometimes the reality isn't always what people want to to hear or read about. And I, I notice in, you know, just trying to pitch stories and things, everybody wants the bad news. Everybody wants the fear. Everybody wants the, um, you know, innocence being slaughtered and, and sort of this. But there is a whole other uh, a trove of stories out there about people that are getting along with life or trying to force in reconciliation or try to um, just reopen their businesses and get back to normal. And unfortunately, they aren't the sexy stories that people want to hear. But the reality is that 
Afghans are very resilient people and they are, a lot of them are trying their best to get along in life in a very difficult economic situation. And to me, that is the biggest problem right now is just there's no hard cash. There's no money coming into this country. I can't get money out. I can't get a Western Union transfer. I can't get anything. And certainly the Afghans are, are not only not able to access their own money, but they are unable to make any money at the same time. So I'm very concerned about the sort of the future of Afghanistan economically. I really think it's on the brink of a collapse and with inflation, the lack of imports, the lack of just general trading, it's, it's a, it's a problem. And I, the last thing I want to see is Afghanistan become so heavily sanctioned by the US and other places that it becomes another North Korea. And that is my concern that I'm sort of seeing among circles in, in DC and other places is sort of this push to hamstring the country even further. And I, I see the people that suffer from that are really the Afghan people. The, the Taliban doesn't even take a salary. Those foot soldiers, they haven't, they, they're not fighting for money. They didn't receive money a year ago. They're not going to receive money now. They don't care. They can survive um it's the regular afghans that can't and they're the ones who are going to be hurt by by the sort of the continuation of trying to to roadblock the country as much as possible okay uh, uh so uh one last perspective and then um you know I, I don't want to keep you forever because these are dispatches but uh you you bring up uh something that reminds me of uh another cycle of of things that you did in the past and that it's it's really the innocents that are in the way of change or are in the path of change not they're not in the way of it they're just there the 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 suffer the most you know the ordinary people and you know i remember when you were doing your work in iraq and syria during the time of isis it was really the regular people the ordinary people that, that suffered the most. And is that a pattern you're seeing here again? And, um, uh, and, and what's your message to the world from your observations about, you know, are, are we going to care about the, the ordinary people this time? Yeah. And I don't, I don't think, um, of course, it's always the ordinary people that suffer the most in, in conflict, any sort of conflict, post-conflict aftermath. It's always the, the ordinary people that are just, you know, they didn't choose this government. They didn't choose the U.S. They didn't choose any of these sort of, um, you know, foreign uh, footprints, so to speak. And yet they're always having to deal with the ramifications of that, um, whether that is a U.S. government, whether it is the corrupt former Afghan government, whether it is the Taliban. So this isn't choices that any of them were ever able to really make. Um, and they're really the ones that have to, to deal with it. And quite frankly, most of them don't, don't they just don't have knowledge of politics. They don't care. They just want to be able to feed their family. And, and right now that is a really difficult thing. And I, I just think a lot of decisions are made in DC that are very far from Afghanistan and without the import or sort of real awareness of people on the ground. Um, and also a lot of sort of the hysteria is driven by the diaspora as well. And again, they're people that have left, not people that are here. And we really need to listen to the voices of the people that are here. Well, and that is, uh, I think the, uh, the, 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 the human message and the strategic message of this week's dispatch from Holly McKay. Thank you, Holly. Um, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Dennis.